It's good to see you here tonight. Isn't it a blessing to be able to assemble, to come together as we are, to rest assured that we can appreciate a bit of a removal from those burdens that can so often be upon our shoulders and our hearts and minds, and come together for the occasion to lift high the banner of not only the Word of God, but to appreciate in it the sustenance, provision, and power that you and I can use every day to live in the most peaceful and tranquil and serene way possible. Surely, as we give thought to the lesson of, of the hour tonight, you probably have already noted the readings taken from the Old Testament. In Judges chapter 11, we have a record, an episode presented to us, probably the most controversial section of the book of Judges, to be sure. Tonight, would you reflect with me on that and see if we can't take some lessons from it that could be very useful and very helpful to you and to me. These introductory thoughts will move us on our way as we begin the lesson this evening. The Word of God, as you can well tell on that slide, is such that all throughout the 66 books of the Bible, we encounter an almost unending supply of material information. So many Bible characters, and some of them acted with such wisdom. They made great decisions. They acted in ways that were right and proper. But on other occasions, there were those who didn't act quite so wisely. They made bad choices. They acted rather poorly. May I say to you that the Holy Spirit's inspiration is such that we not only can learn from the wise choices of the wise, we can also learn from the foolish choices of the foolish not to make those mistakes, to act differently. Jephthah was one of the judges recorded for us in the book of Judges. You may have noticed about the middle of that slide, there have been those who have in fact noted maybe this passage before us not only has a bit of a strange character, some might even rank it as troubling for reasons you, should, you and I shall see in a moment. Could we revisit this passage? May I be quick to say there are some who upon looking at these details of the book of, Jephthah, of, the book of Judges, namely that of Jephthah, They've alleged the Bible, perhaps in this, actually has an immoral character to it. It has a character that makes me not so much want to follow it, some would say. I hope you and I will be better equipped as we leave. When someone were to mention a passage like this one to us, that we might have some thoughts to share with them, that maybe it isn't exactly what they have heard someone say it is. Let's begin our lesson then as we look at this next slide. I thought it would do us well to reflect briefly on the setting of the book of Judges so that we could place chapter 11 in its proper context and with that be better equipped to look at the details of that chapter itself. As you can see at the top, after the children of Israel left Egypt and after they completed the 40 years of wilderness wandering, they arrived at that Canaan land that land that flowed with milk and honey, they arrived at that destination to which God had pointed them now for a few decades. Surely, as we remember, they crossed the Jordan River in a triumphant fashion in Joshua chapter 3. They swept into that land and they conquered the peoples that were there. And that land was theirs. God had, in essence, bequeathed it to them. He had deeded it to them so that they, as the children of Israel, could dwell there. But have you ever noticed what government they were supposed to follow? We here in our land have a centralized government in Washington, D.C. 
and the nation of France has a centralized government with seat in Paris. And most countries have some centralized government. The children of Israel had no such government. There was no capital city, if you please. Rather, they were 12 tribes bound together by their common consideration of the God of heaven. That's the only thing that bound them. Every individual was bound together by his or her commitment to the Word of God and to the commitment that they, as the children of Abraham through Jacob, were to understand. There was no centralized government, at least in a civil way. But that immediate comment is this. There were occasions, of course, when the children of Israel fell into idolatry. They fell into behaviors that were not consistent with the loving truth of God. And when that happened, God would raise up an individual because the people would, it seems, finally come to their senses. They would recognize we had it good when we served God. But now that we've fallen into idolatry, things are bad. The Philistines are oppressing us or the Canaanites are oppressing us. And when they finally recognized that, they would cry unto God and God would raise up a deliverer. The Old Testament calls them judges. You'll notice about the middle of that slide, the Old Testament lists 15 of these judges. The first one was a gentleman named Othniel. And they continued from that point forward. There's Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar and Deborah and Gideon and Abimelech, just to name the first six. But you'll notice that among that list of 15 judges, the ninth one was a man named Jephthah. Tonight, we're going to cast a spotlight on Jephthah. Specifically, one attribute, one event recorded for us in Judges chapter 11. You may notice immediately as you come to consider Jephthah, I'll already ask you to notice he is listed very prominently in Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament. You remember the scene of that chapter well. It's the so-called honor roll of faith. And one by one, these great heroes of faith are listed. People like Abel and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Moses. And in that list, there's a man named Jephthah. The events of Jephthah's life apparently would have reckoned the New Testament writer to remember here was a great man of faith. He acted in such a way that it really is to be something noted with care and maybe even parts thereof imitated as we think about what it means to be a man or a woman of faith. If the New Testament then looks so favorably upon Jephthah, what is the scene of his life and what might we learn about this vow of, he, of Judges chapter 11? You may notice as we come to this, the specifics of the moment, Jephthah was a person who lived at a time when the children of Israel were facing an enemy. It often happened, of course, that they did, but this time it happened to be Ammon. If you'd revisit with me Judges 11, at this particular time, the children of Ammon, in fact, made a demand of the children of Israel You've got some land that belongs to us, and we demand that you give it back. Now, quite frankly, this land that was the source of the dispute was land that the children of Israel had acquired hundreds of years earlier because the children of Ammon had been defeated because God blessed the children of Israel. 
Back when Moses was leading them, one of the enemies that had to be defeated was the Ammonites. And due to their failure to, in fact, submit to God, God gave Israel that land. Well, now the fact is that these Ammonites had come before the children of Israel and said, You've got land that belongs to us. And Jephthah said, I'm sorry, that isn't right. You disobeyed. And when the opportunity was presented, you chose to enter into conflict with us and our God blessed us with victory over you. That land does not belong to you. It belongs to us. That didn't satisfy the king of Ammon. And as you come to verses 29 and following of Judges chapter 11, this is what happened. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed over Gilead and Manasseh, and passed over Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead he passed over unto the children of Ammon. And Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord, and said, If thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into mine hands, then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. We immediately notice that as Jephthah prepared for battle, it says he passed over and he in fact availed himself of a proper strategic place it would seem. But as he was ready to enter into that battle, he vowed a vow unto God. God, if you will grant victory for the children of Israel, your people, over these enemies, these Ammonites... Then, upon my return to my house, I will grant to you, give to you, dedicate to you the first thing that passes through the door when I get back, and I'll offer it to you. You and I would be immediately impressed, at least in one sense. As he entered into battle, Jephthah understood that he needed the provision and the power of a higher power than he. He trusted in the God of heaven, you see. And quite often we notice many of the later kings of the Old Testament prior to entering into battle, they would make a petition unto God and they would beseech His aid. David often did that in fact, didn't he? As you'll notice as we come to the bottom of that slide, this statement of verses 19 to, I'm sorry, 29 to 31 brings us to appreciate that as the battle was soon to take place, this is the mindset that Jephthah utilized as he, in fact, approached it. As you come to the top of this slide, I've tried to place in italics two critical matters of that statement that Jephthah made. Again, verse number 31, "...shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering." Throughout the ages, many have then wondered, so what was this? When Jephthah got back home, first, did God grant the Israelites victory over the Ammonites? Did he satisfy the terms of that particular vow? And if he did, when Jephthah got back home, did he remain true to his vow? And if so, what first came through the door? What met him? Because that's what Jephthah had specified must be dedicated to God. You'll notice as you come to that slide, the text doesn't leave us long to wonder. For picking up the saga in verse 32, it says, So Jephthah passed over unto the children of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. 
God gave the Israelites overwhelming triumph and victory over these Ammonites. Verse 33, And he smote them from Aral air, even until thou come to Mineth, even twenty cities, and unto the plain of the vineyards with a very great slaughter. Thus the children of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. It was an overwhelming victory for Jephthah and his forces. It was a great victory indeed, in fact, setting aside the character of the difficulties from the Ammonites. So at this point, God has blessed Israel with that victory. And according to the terms, we need to see who first met Jephthah when he returned. Let's continue reading. Verse number 34 reads, And Jephthah came to Mizpah unto his house. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances, and she was his only child. Beside her he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low, and thou art one of them that trouble me. For I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back." And she said unto him, My father, if thou hast opened thy mouth unto the Lord, do to me according to that which hath proceeded out of thy mouth, for as much as the Lord hath taken vengeance for thee of thine enemies, even of the children of Ammon. And she said unto her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go up and down upon the mountains and bewail my virginity, I and my fellows. And he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months that she went with her companions and bewailed her virginity upon the mountains. And it came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father, who did with her according to his vow which he had vowed. And she knew no man. And it was a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in a year. A very stirring scene in many ways, isn't it? Here's a circumstance in which, as we've noted, God granted the victory to the children of Israel over the Ammonites. And then in following to that, we noted that Jephthah had made a vow. Was he true to it? Did he keep the terms of that vow that he had made? As you come to verse number 34, he returned to his house, to his home at Mizpah. And when he did, we are quick told that the one who first came through the door to meet him, the very first one was his own flesh and blood, his own daughter. The text of that verse reads it very carefully. His daughter came out to meet him, and she was clearly the first one. At this point, what are you and I then to imagine as we give thought to this? Was Jeff the statement then that the one who was first to meet him Did Jephthah take her life? Did he offer her as a sacrifice then to the God of heaven in answer to the vow that he had made? You'll notice that the text as it reads from verses 35 onward quickly tells us in verse number 39, he did do what his vow had asserted. The language again reads, It came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father, who did with her according to his vow which he, which he had vowed. There any question, there isn't any doubt. Whatever it was specifically stated in light of that vow, Jephthah carried it out. He did that vow. He did it in its fullness and he did it in its completeness. 
At this point, most, in fact, if not all, of the remainder of our lesson will center around what was this vow? What is it that Jephthah carried out? Does the language offer us any aid and any help? You'll notice as we come to the bottom, the questions are rather immediate. First of all, did he kill his daughter? Did he offer her as a burnt offering unto God? Or were the terms of the vow actually something a bit different than that? Let us see. Let us turn our attention and give some thought to this vow that Jephthah made and highlight the details and the specifics of it. As we come to the next slide, let us analyze a bit more carefully some of the features and some of the actual statements contained in the vow itself. First of all, in verse number 31, when Jephthah was actually making the vow, it says, It shall be that, whos that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's. One of the first things we might notice here was a definitive statement that Jephthah was making a determination, a dedication, that that which comes first through the door would be wholly and completely dedicated unto the Lord. And then he continues to say, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. The word that actually occurs in that passage in the original Hebrew literally means that which is a sacrifice. It has to do with a complete free will offering of this entity, whatever happened to be the point of discussion, unto the God of heaven. But not only that, you might notice that the language itself also seems clearly to eliminate any animal possibility. In other words, Jephthah wasn't concerned that maybe the, a dog would first come through the door or maybe some other pet. It would seem that the original language clearly indicated a human subject. Already we're beginning to appreciate a few of the truths, but let's add this point in. It seems to me a rather vital one. Give some consideration to this with me. If it was the fact, and if it was the case here then that Jephthah was making a promise, I literally am going to take the life of a human subject, a human being that first passes through that door. What would that indicate? What would that mean in light of earlier Old Testament passages? May I direct your attention to passages like Leviticus 18.21. Earlier, the children of Israel had been told this. You are never ever to let your children pass through the fire. And you and I have often noted in our discussion of passages like that, that meant you were never to offer human sacrifices. That's not what God wanted, it's not what He expected, and it's not what He demanded of you. Furthermore, in Leviticus 20, verses 2 and following, God pronounced a tremendous curse upon those individuals of the children of Israel who would offer a human sacrifice, including their own children. How often do you and I remember that there were some circumstances in which those pagan gods, they were served by human sacrifices of children. Do you and I know, Molech, Chemosh, sometimes in the interest of serving those particular gods and goddesses, it was perceived by the human beings that those gods wanted you to offer your children. I know that's unthinkable to us. 
But notice that God had many times asserted in the Old Testament that that was never to be done. That never crossed my mind, he later would say in the book of Jeremiah. Let's read even further. In Deuteronomy 12, verse 31, right before the children of Israel entered into the land of Canaan, Moses, in fact, reminded them even then, don't ever appreciate the fact that God is desirous of you allowing your children to be offered a sacrifice. That is not to be done. God is the giver of life, and He doesn't want it to be taken that way. Finally, in Deuteronomy 18.10, there's another statement, very direct and strong, that highlights the evil that associated with the offering of a human sacrifice, a child, if you please, your own child unto God. Now, keeping those things in mind, what have we seen concerning Jephthah? If we read this burnt offering as if he intended to kill his daughter, that means he was expressly desiring to do what God had forbidden him to do. When you and I studied vows in the Sunday morning class, when we studied that text in Numbers chapter 30, and the features of the characteristics of vows, we learned how important they were and how critical they were. But this one seems to be posing a bit of a challenge. Is it true that before he entered into battle, Jephthah said, I'll give you the life of my daughter. I will kill her with my own hand and offer her as a sacrifice to you when all the while God had said, that's not my will and that's never to be done. Notice what later was said about Manasseh, a later Old Testament king. In 2 Chronicles 33, verses 6 and 7, wasn't it true there that here Manasseh, in fact, did offer the children of Israel, the little baby boys and girls of Israel, unto one of the gods of the land? And God said, I'm going to judge Manasseh for that. That's great evil and that's an abomination. What do we make of this scene then? Was Jephthah wishing, planning, determining to actually offer his own daughter against the wishes of God? Let's read even further. Might you and I keep in mind that in the aftermath of this vow, God granted it. Jephthah said, if you'll grant me victory over the Ammonites and if you'll turn them into my hand, God did that. God met the terms for the successful completion of this vow. It does seem a bit unthinkable or at least unreasonable to suppose that God would have granted the particulars and the means of this vow knowing that Jephthah, under the supposition at least, that Jephthah had promised what was against the will of God. As you and I look even further, I suppose we've at least come to the point of wondering, could it be that Jephthah actually intended something else in the vow besides actually taking the life of his daughter? Was there something else in the language that could perhaps have been easy to understand? Let me offer this suggestion to you. Could it also be in light of the statement of verse 31? Could it be that Jephthah was not asserting that I will literally kill my daughter or I will kill the human being that comes through first through the door, but rather I will take that individual and offer him or her wholly, completely, and perpetually as an ongoing, permanent offering to God. Could it be that that's what Jephthah meant? Now let's explain that or at least give some thought to what that would have involved. First of all, you'll notice this isn't 
the only time that that happens in the Old Testament. Consider this scene with me from 1 Samuel chapter 1. Hannah was barren. She didn't have any children, but she so desperately wanted a baby boy. She petitioned God for assistance to remove her barrenness. And God granted it, but along the consideration of it, she said, I will dedicate him unto the Lord. And even while that boy was just young, she took him to the tabernacle and turned him over to Eli. That little boy was Samuel. And in her promise to fulfill that which she planned, she gave him to the Lord. He didn't grow up in her house, you see. He grew up at the tutelage of Eli. He grew up in the, in the tabernacle. He grew up learning all the intricacies of what it meant to serve the Lord in that capacity. And Samuel was the last judge that Israel ever had. Samuel's a great Old Testament character in some ways. But there's one scene where he was dedicated to the Lord, but Hannah didn't kill him. Hannah offered him with complete dedicatory service to God. Could that be what Jephthah meant? Let's read further. You'll notice as we come to the bottom, the Old Testament has a number of references to where this kind of activity, in fact, happened rather often. Notice a few of these possible scenarios with me. In Exodus 38, verse number 8, from the first time in all the Old Testament, we have a reference to where there were people whose job it was. They were dedicated in their life to service at the tabernacle. That's what they did. Think about giving every day in service to the tabernacle. Oddly enough, many of them apparently were women. They devoted all of their time to serving at the tabernacle in one way or another. They would encourage, help, and support in the ways that God would permit them. Not only that, in 1 Samuel 2 verse 22, we of course later learn that Samuel was dedicated in that service to Eli in that regard. In Luke chapter 2 verse 36, we have a New Testament example. I suppose you'll remember with me that lady named Anna. Do you remember what was said about her? Even though she was 84 years of age... You and I would call that a woman in her advanced years, and yet she spent day and night at the temple. Doing what? The text says serving the Lord. She apparently had dedicated her life in absolute perpetual character to the service at the temple. Could it be that Jephthah was making promise, making a vow that the one first to meet him coming through the door that not he was promising to take the person's life, but rather to wholly devote and dedicate that individual completely to God. I would ask if you and I would think more about that. Let's turn the slide and see what else comes before us. There are a few things in this text that it seems to me have a bearing on, on our conclusion. Could I invite you to notice a few of them with me? First of all, in verse number 34... The text emphasizes this fact. She was his only child. Beside her he had neither son nor daughter. It's almost as if the inspired writer goes out of his way to emphasize the fact Jephthah had no other children, not any other boys, not any other girls. If Jephthah took her life, why would that be such a critical thing to observe? 
However, may I suggest to you, if she was such that he was in fact making an oath to, do, to now direct her to per perpetual service, that means she would have been a virgin for life. She would have never been a mother. She could never have had any children. This text takes on an entirely new emphasis, if that's true, because that would mean since Jephthah had no other children, that means his name would have become extinct in Israel. The seed line for Jephthah could not have continued. And of course, for an Israelite, that was a very serious thing. All Israelites wanted their seed to continue, for they wanted the Messiah, hopefully, to come through their seed and their lineage but in this case, in light of the vow that Jephthah made, if in, defeat, if in fact this is what it was, Jephthah's vow resulted in his seed line becoming extinct. Not only that, consider this also with me. The Old Testament had cast a strong spotlight on how serious this observation was. In Deuteronomy 24, the opening few verses of that chapter describe the following situation. If a man died and had no children, his brother was to marry his widow, and any children born were to take the, father, the deceased man's name. That's how important it was to preserve the seed line. And yet in this case, as a result of Jephthah's vow, if this is what it was, his line became extinct. Not only that, don't you find it interesting that if in fact it was true that Jephthah killed his daughter, why did she ask for two months to go bewail her virginity? What difference did that make? What difference would it make that she had never known a man if dad was going to soon kill her? But may I suggest, she asked for two months that she might in fact bewail that virginity it would seem that that much better helps us appreciate if in fact dad had made a vow that he was going to dedicate to God that which first passed through the door and if that was now his daughter. She was solely dedicated now unto the Lord and this two months was a time to appreciate she would never become a mother. She would never have any children. And this two month period was a time to perhaps bewail that thought. And in verse number 40, the daughters of Israel yearly lamented the daughter of Jephthah. May I ask you to notice that the actual wording that's in the original text of Hebrew is that they celebrated. They didn't lament. It seems to me that's a significant difference. Notice, you might well lament it if she died, but the text says that they celebrated her. May I say that that would in fact be far more likely to explain the understanding of he, he made a vow relating to her perpetual virginity and her dedication to God. Maybe it is in light of those things we close that slide by recurring or reflecting again on the Hebrews 11 passage. If Jephthah really did kill his daughter and thus did exactly what the law of Moses said he should never ever do, why would Jephthah have been included amongst the hall, the great men of faith in Hebrews 11? Why would he have been included amongst those who in fact lifted high the banner of faith to God? But on the other hand, if Jephthah's line was to become extinct, and if he any way gave his daughter to be a perpetual virgin, 
doesn't that speak volumes about the commitment that Jephthah had? The commitment that he understood and that he carried out in terms of doing what he promised in his vow. It would seem that the better explanation that fits all the evidence of Judges 11, as well as Hebrews 11, indicates that Jephthah didn't kill his daughter, but rather he offered her as a perpetual servant to God throughout all the days of her life. With that thought said, what lessons might you and I take from that that could be of some assistance and some help to us? Things that could be good lessons or at least applications. Number one, could I ask you to notice vows were very important. In fact, crucially so. How easy would it have been for Jephthah to say, God, I'm thankful that you gave me the victory over the Ammonites, but I had no idea my own daughter was going to be the first one to meet me. I, I think I would like to back out of that vow. I sure would like to have some grandchildren. You notice that Jephthah didn't do that. Despite the fact that it was his daughter, he still was true to that vow. He kept it. He did exactly what he promised. Maybe in that there's a good lesson for us. In Numbers chapter 30, verse number 2, God had through Moses told the children of Israel, whenever you make a vow to God, make sure that you keep it. Don't ever, ever think that you can back out of a vow to God. Jephthah was an example of that trueness and that faithfulness and the one who was true to the word and the vow that he had made. You'll notice in Ecclesiastes 5, verse number 2, later Solomon had something to say about this. He said, when thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. One more time, that sounds very familiar, doesn't it? The children of Israel were admonished and encouraged to always be true to the vows they had made. As you and I come to the New Testament today, what about the words that you and I speak? Now, we may not cast them in the form of an oath or the form of a vow, but should it be expected that a Christian, a man or a woman, would in fact be true to the word that that individual has spoken? That, that an individual would in fact attempt to be true and faithful to that which has been decreed and declared? Well, surely we know that's true because the Bible so often references it. In James chapter 1, verse 19, James says, Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. We also find otherwise in Proverbs 8, verse 7. They're not specifically referring to an oath, but rather to language that we should strive in pleasing to God to be true to that which we've declared. Maybe another one seen in that light would be Zechariah 8, 16. Speak ye every man the truth with his neighbor. It seems interesting to me that that one is quoted verbatim in Ephesians chapter 4. You and I as Christians are admonished that inasmuch as we have become not the old man but the new man, our language should be reflective of honesty and purity and truth, ever striving to be faithful and true to that which we've spoken, not given to lying, not given to deception, not given to that which is backbiting or whispering, but to be given in trueness to that which we have affirmed. Does that characterize your words and mine? Does it characterize the way in which others perceive what we say? 
Sometimes it's an interesting thing to contemplate, isn't it? You and I know well how often talk takes place, perhaps at the workplace. Have you ever heard someone say, well, you can't trust a thing that he says. He's liable to say one thing and do something else. May it be such that nobody ever says that about us. May it be, on the other hand, that they say, if he said it, you can count on it. That's the way it really is. I might suggest, at least from this episode in Jephthah, we're reminded of the significance of our language and our words. But look at the second lesson. Isn't it also interesting that we find in this a lesson that relates to the rashness and the danger that may well be seen also in the rashness of quick words? It's also true, isn't it, that here Jephthah made a vow. Again, in Numbers chapter 30, we remember how serious a vow was. If you made it, you God expected you to keep it. Jephthah made this vow. Maybe he did it somewhat thoughtlessly. The text doesn't say. Maybe he did it without considering who might be the first to meet him. The text doesn't say. But at the very least, we can say this. You and I know today how swiftly problems can develop if we're too quick and too rash in our answer. Someone makes mention of something to us and we speak before we've thought about it. Sometimes we live to regret those words and we end up needing to apologize. I'm sorry I didn't have all the information. I wished I hadn't said that. Would you forgive me? Maybe it is in light of that. Look at some of these verses at the bottom. In Proverbs 18 verse 13, again from the pen of Solomon himself, he pronounced how foolish it is when a person answers a matter before he hears it. Now think about that. Here's a person who gives an answer to a circumstance, who provides input on a situation, but he hasn't heard all the details and the facts yet. Solomon said that's not good. We also notice in Proverbs 29, 20, Another statement reminding us again about the danger that can sometimes come from rash words. Do you and I think carefully before we speak? Are we too quick to speak and are we often regretful of it? Sometimes we can do a great deal of damage and harm when we speak too quickly. Our wish, as we've learned it from Jephthah tonight, is to understand that our promise, our vow, our nature of our Christian life, is such that it does include a very profound vow, doesn't it? Would you consider the statement, the declaration, the proclamation that is made right before a person's baptized? A gentleman will say, Do you believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And the person will say, Yes, I do. That person has made a public statement in the witnesses of others and that statement is an affirmation that he or she does in fact believe with all of his or her heart that Jesus is the Christ and that he or she intends to live faithfully into Him. May you and I live like that. We've learned a lot from Jephthah in many ways. Let's close our lesson with these brief comments and the lesson will be yours. As you think about Jephthah, we've studied the character of the vow that he made and have concluded that it seems that his vow really involved his dedication of her, whoever would come through that door, and it happened to be his daughter, to perpetual service unto God. 
not that he took her life, but rather he dedicated her on that occasion throughout all the days of her life to serving God. That meant she was to be a perpetual virgin. She never knew a man. And that's why she lamented that thought for two months. Among that, we've learned these two lessons, that we should strive as Christians to be true to our words and our language, and that we should not be too hasty in our words, but always strive to make sure we hear it well and provide an answer that's appropriate. This very evening, as we've come together for this period of service unto God, there might be someone in the audience that would be in a position to wish to make a public response to the invitation of God. I hope that you'll be motivated to continue that in a moment as we stand this and sing this song. It'll be an opportune time. God so powerfully calls you. He wants you to be a faithful child of His. If you've never become a Christian, start that journey tonight. Believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized. And once you've started that journey, always be faithful to Him. And so it is, if you're not faithful tonight, if you need to come back and ask for prayers of brethren to God for your forgiveness, we'd be honored and happy to pray for you. And we'd pray for your strength and your encouragement. This song of encouragement has been chosen. And if there'd be anyone in the audience who would wish to come... We would invite you to do so, and so too does the Master, even at this moment, while together we stand and while we sing.